Hello and welcome back to Books and Badgers. We are your Redwall Read Along podcast, and today we're covering Book Two: The Quest. As always, my name is Colin, and with me is Trevor. How you doing, Trevor? I'm doing pretty good today. How are you feeling about uh, Book Two: The Quest? You know, um, it's so much longer than the first one, and so much longer than the third one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so i it kind of took me a little bit by surprise you know how long this section of the book is yeah. but i actually think that this is the best part of the book um i yeah. i love the whole book don't get me wrong but i think the quest is really where the book starts to come into its own and i think it's a preview for what other books will aspire to be all right. So before we get into talking about uh, some of our notes, and this is going to be a pretty long episode, so I apologize in advance for the length. I will try to keep it as brief as possible. But there's a lot to unpack in this part two, isn't there? There's there's just a lot in there. There's it's. I mean, it's the longest part of the book, and so <laughs> it, it's just packed with information. And yeah. Jake's does not skimp out on plot when it comes to even just an individual chapter, you might get something that's five pages long, but it's dense with action and just carrying the story forward. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So first, uh, wanted to ask you since last time we chatted, uh, is there anything new that you've been reading? Yeah. You know, I've been reading a lot of stuff lately. Uh, kind of got back into Spider-Man from the 1960s. Uh, nice. I was taking a little bit of, break, of a break from Marvel Comics because I'd read so many of them. Um, but I really just wanted to digest a few old 60s era Spider-Man comics. So I've been doing that. And I just finished this week Melonhead Mayhem by Alex Ebenstein which I guess I could kind of pitch as a Goosebumps book for adults. Oh, nice. It is really fun. It's based kind of around some urban legend. Um, and it, it really like plays with the tropes of like a rubber monster in a B movie, you know, horror film. Um, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Nice. That sounds that sounds interesting. I love that title too. That's that's a great book title. Um, for me, I've been uh, I finished up Blue Lock, which is uh, uh, kind of my in between fix for uh, Premier League soccer matches, or uh, that's what we say <laughs> here in the states, football matches. If you're from the rest of the world, uh, I really like this series, but I'm not a huge fan of the current arc, and I'm all caught up with what's been translated and available here in the states. Mm. So I'm going to be kind of waiting to kind of feel out the rest of this arc once this um, the the other volumes come out. Um, I've also started on Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's a collection of of short stories uh, and it's kind of a mix between science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I've never really read any of Ken Liu's things, but I've heard um, really kind of rave reviews about his stories and um, I've been reading a lot more anthologies and short story collections. And so 
uh, yeah, I, I kind of just started the first few stories with that, but I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, I really like to have these small little breaks between books um, mm-hmm. and like getting close to the end of Redwall, uh, the first book. This has been, just been nice to kind of break up some of those shorter chapters um, with, with some other reading. Yeah, I actually picked up uh, a short fiction collection called Tales to Keep You Up at Night by Dan Poblaki. Um, borrowed it from my local library. It's like it's it's like horror for kids, but it's it's all short fiction, uh, and I'm really excited cool. to dive yeah. into it. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I I really like short fiction. I really like short stories. I think that they are um, kind of out of style, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope that I hope that turns around. I hope it comes back. I well, think it what is you, coming back for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, what do you say about jumping into book two, the quest? We got a lot of questing to do, so let's go ahead. <laughs> let's start this journey. All right. So book two, The Quest, opens just where book one left off. We remember Matthias had wandered off into Mossflower Wood after saving the Vole family. He kind of got lost and turned around. And meanwhile, Methuselah, back at the Abbey, uh, has discovered a clue to the location of Martin's sword. So chapter one opens with Matthias waking from his nap and he realizes he's lost in the woods and he doesn't know how to get back home. And he encounters a young squirrel who does not talk, just sucks on his paw, uh, who escorts him back to, to Redwall. Yeah. And when we left in episode one with this kind of cliffhanger of Matthias, I mentioned that his reaction uh, I mentioned a little bit about his reaction. He wakes up and he's like kind of mad at himself for falling asleep. Again, I don't really know why Jake's includes this. Um, we talked about it maybe being part of kind of the hero's journey, just having some respite at the end of an adventure. Um, but it's clear that Matthias wants to jump right back into the action because he's he's mad that he was resting when um, there's been a lot that's been going on at the Abbey. They're under assault at the time. And so... Um, he really wants to get back to um, the rest of the gang. Yeah, I struggled a little bit with some of this. I felt like it is definitely a moment of immaturity for Matthias. But I also think that perhaps Matthias just doesn't recognize that part of being a hero means that you do have to take rest. Like you have to allow yourself to reset a little bit. And I don't think he understands how to manage his energy really well, um, especially in this part of the book. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think you're totally right in that. It, it does seem very strange, though, like just from a, a narrative perspective, um, this rest and then him kind of throwing a fit from this. But we're introduced to one of the most, I don't know, iconic <laughs> favorite um, new characters, which we'll learn more about in the uh the next few chapters. Yeah. 
So chapter two uh, returns to Redwall Abbey. And here we see that Methuselah uh, is talking with Abbot Mortimer and he spots Clooney trying to enter Redwall via a tree and informs Abbot Mortimer of the attempt to breach the, the Abbey walls. Constance dislodges Clooney's plank, the tool he was going to use in order to climb over the walls into the alley or the Abbey. And it tosses him and several of his unit down to the ground, grievously wounding him and killing several others in his ranks. As Matthias makes his way back into the Abbey, he witnesses Cheese Thief murder Scrag the, the weasel um, as Clooney is taken away on a stretcher. Uh, this is a really great little character moment that I want to talk about in just a moment here. But anyway, inside the Abbey, Matthias finally confers with the Redwall elders about everything he's learned and is told Methuselah has some information for him in the Great Hall about the location of the Martin Sword. Uh, we also learn that the baby squirrel's name is Silent Sam, and that's the character you were alluding to uh, I think he's one of the standouts of this whole book uh, in that he's just another one of those characters that you instantly fall in love with. Yeah, absolutely. He just sounds so adorable. And uh, we get to see a lot of Silent Sam um, and in the rest of the book, and he, he is a great character. Um, yeah. Tons to unpack in this chapter, though. Like, first off, it's just the the whole uh, foiling of Clooney's plan with the plank to try to get in from the tree seems like something out of a um, Roadrunner and Coyote, Wild E. Coyote, <laughs> like, uh, cartoon. The way that they interact in this is just, it's kind of funny. We also get multiple point of views in this chapter. We kind of see Clooney's point of view. We see it from um, Constance and the rest of the Abbey defenders. It's a very comical moment. However, I, the first time I read this, I was like, this is how Clooney dies. Is this how he dies? I legit thought that he <laughs> died. And then I kept reading and realized, oh, he didn't die, but he's gravely injured in this. Um, I also love this climbing of the ranks of cheese thief. I <laughs> cheese thief. I, I I have to say, listening back to the first episode, I say I love a lot about these characters, and and uh, I, I guess I can't help it because cheese thief is definitely now on the list. His interactions <laughs> with the rest of the the Clooney gang, this kind of starting of the the betrayal of of Scrags is is so funny to me. Yeah, I I always liked Scrag as just kind of like he's clearly a, a rank climber um but he's not really like obsequious about it you know right mm -hmm. and then there's cheese thief who's just like obviously pining for Clooney's position and will do anything he can in order to get there which includes just stabbing the dude or not stabbing but strangling the dude that would be Clooney's number two yeah, and he kind of just takes a play uh, out of Scrag's book in doing that because that's something Scrag would totally do. So it's kind of funny to see Cheese Thief use his own tactics there. Yeah, we see a lot of this same kind of uh, like rank climbing aspirations, but I think Cheese Thief is the perfect kind of encapsulation of 
why I think Clooney's plan was always destined to fail. Because right. whereas the Redwall defenders offer a unified front in their goals, uh, we see that Clooney's horde just can't keep from stabbing each other in the back. Yeah, there's a lot of dis- dissent in Clooney's ranks for sure. Uh, I also just think it's in- incredibly funny that, as we mentioned in episode one, um, lieutenants in Clooney's army don't last very long. So it's funny <laughs> that they're all kind of <laughs> rushing to jump into this position that they immediately have some kind of demise. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really funny. Uh, we'll put a pin in in cheese thief because uh, we'll he, see a little more cheese thief. We, yeah. we see a bit more cheese thief, yeah, for sure. So in chapter three, Clooney, with his broken leg and arm, is on the brink of death, and he has nightmarish visions about his eventual downfall to a mouse with a sword. He calls on his army to bring him a healer and learns of Sela the Vixen and her son Chickenhound, who allegedly can fix Clooney's injuries. He also issues orders to create a battering ram for the gates of Redwall. Yeah, I'm not so familiar with um, foxes in the Redwall series, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on on Sela and, and Chickenhound. And um, that yet, yeah, does this play more into the kind of fox archetype? Like, are they? We we said that hares are are kind of the same, where if you've met a hare, you've met them all. How does that kind of fit in with Sela and Chickenhound? It's pretty much the standard across the entire series. Uh, oddly enough, there are references to foxes being a little less malevolent on the whole, and Sela in particular just being the worst one. But as we'll find in sequel books, and especially in Mossflower in the next book, uh, you'll come to find that this archetype of the wily uh, healer fox, you know, kind of being a bit double dealing or backstabbing. Um, that's that's pretty much the archetype here. Yeah, this is one thing that I, I kind of didn't like about this chapter. I, this might be a hot take, but I just thought that the foxes were way too on the nose and not as crafty. Like, it's very clear from the introduction of Sela and Chicken Hound with the fact that they're like snickering to themselves uh, or sniggering is how it's said in the the fact that they're kind of like chuckling to themselves. And it's just very clear that they are, you know, uh, two timers. And we'll learn a little bit more about that. Uh, spoiler yeah. for the next few chapters. But yeah, I just I, the, I I guess in some of the other animals, I really love that they um, embody these kind of characteristics like spike for example he's kind of laid back and that has to deal with a little bit of, of his, his nature as an animal but yeah i just i don't know i they didn't really Sela is just too on the nose i don't know how to describe it i think it's really interesting um we, we can definitely dig into some of the kind of gender politics here that i don't think jake's ever really intended uh but Sela absolutely kind of embodies a character of like the femme fatale um oh, dev- very much a, a type right like someone who comes in and pretends to be very nourishing and caring uh but really is just like planning to rob you blind and uh and possibly have you knocked off yeah that's interesting i always kind of saw her as like the nomadic gypsy i you know what i mean like there's a lot of that, that she, too yeah yeah that she's 
her decisions that she makes is just for her own survival. But she's, as you said earlier, she's just kind of outwardly malicious about it. Um, And I was like, is that Fox nature? Is that, you know, just how the foxes are? Yeah. Um, So I I think I might change my mind on her a little later after reading more books about foxes. But um, that's just one of the notes I had. Yeah, she definitely sets the archetype, I think, for the rest of the series. And we're going to run into a lot of foxes. Um, and I don't mean to say that every single fox is like a healer fox and they're double dealing, but you'll find that one of the characteristics of the fox is, of course, you know, even in, in common, uh, folklore or mythology or fables, um, foxes are sly, you know, there's like this idea of the cunning fox. And so that's what I think Jake's is really pulling from is trying to show us a bunch of foxes who are very cunning uh, but they're also kind of stupid about their cunning, as most of the villains in this whole series are. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's a good point. I'm going to keep my my uh, opinions open about foxes <laughs> going forward because uh, I I haven't quite made up my mind. I know I said it's uh, kind of a hot take, but I'm gonna, I'm going to try to keep my mind open about that. Yeah, it'll be. I think it'll be interesting to see what you think as we continue to talk about Sela and how. Uh, she shows up in, in book two. So in chapter four, Matthias meets with Methuselah and Methuselah reveals a riddle he discovered hiding behind the tapestry of Martin the Warrior. And together they begin to solve portions of the riddle, which lead them to a stone stair. With the help of formal, they discover a hidden stairwell leading deeper into the abbey. One one thing I wanted to mention with these synopsis is that we're not going to cover like the specifics of the riddles just for the sake of time. Um, there's a lot more that we could probably talk about than how the riddles are solved. Um, it's also kind of a spoiler for the book too. So I know this is a spoiler discussion, but it's really worth going and reading if you haven't read Redwall and um, I, you 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 have a better understanding of of how the riddles are solved. Yeah, I think for me as just a, a podcaster offering summaries. You know, my objective is to give you the broad sweeps of the story, but also to encourage you. Like, you know, we want you to read along. Uh, it's a read along podcast. So you read, you know, part one in any particular episode, and you can kind of follow along with some of our thoughts as we're reacting to it. But I really do think that with regards to his riddles, Jake's is the kind of writer that it, it just is worth watching the characters puzzle it out together. Um, sometimes because the riddles don't make sense to anyone other than the characters in the universe, but also because right. I think it's just, it's just clever character work. Um, it's clever uh, plotting. And I think that it's just too diminutive of really what Jake's is, is doing if we just, you know, told you the riddle and then all of the solutions all at once. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's really fun for kids. Um, as you know, this is obviously a, a kid's book. And so, um, I think that a lot of the guesswork that's kind of put into the solving the riddles helps to let kids understand what's going on. Uh, it's very similar in the Hobbit too, like the riddles between, um, uh, <laughs> between Bilbo and Gollum. Um, 
and how they kind of go about the riddles and um, even the side door in the Lonely Mountain and how that kind of gets revealed. Um, yeah, the, it's very similar as to kind of get kids to um, to understand like you what you said, yeah. the the properties of this world, and then they can kind of come to the solution with the characters. And of course, riddles, I think, show up in a lot of medieval literatures and, and yeah. just a lot of like ancient literatures uh, to begin with. You know, there's like the character of the Sphinx uh, in Greek mythology uh, who issues riddles. And, and the only way to defeat the, the Sphinx really is to, you know, solve its riddles. So I think that Jake's draws on a really rich tradition here in giving us a really fun riddle that is centered entirely of the lore of, you know, Redwall and Mossflower. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And I, I think that they're great. Like I, I really do enjoy this journey that they kind of go on solving the riddles. Um, and, and this chapter is really, that's kind of what it's full of. Um, one little lore nugget that I did like from this is that um, the moles say that they help to build or, or dig the foundation for the Abbey. And I, I love that little glimpse that we get into a little history of the Abbey. Um, I believe this is the first time we've really heard some lore outside of the legend of Martin the Warrior. And so that's really cool. Like I, I was really piqued by that. And I'm really hoping that we learn more about that in uh, the next books. Yeah, I think what I love about the moles showing up here is that I believe it's this chapter where it's insinuated that Martin the Warrior gave formal the name formal. Um, yep, you're right. Not not this particular formal because there are different formals, right? Um, but the the occupation formal uh, was you know kind of given by Martin the Warrior, and I love that little detail. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So in chapter five. We see Sela the fox attending to Clooney's wounds, and she suggests that he has three weeks of recovery ahead. She learns more about Clooney's activities, though Clooney clearly doesn't trust her entirely. She's held captive by Clooney's army, but gives her son Chickenhound instructions to take to Redwall, saying that she knows when Clooney will strike next and wants to receive a reward for the information. So this is one scene when I think we start to see Clooney as, you know, not just a kind of a witless blunder, um, but we can begin to see that he actually does have like a brain. Like he, he does know how to outthink a lot of his, um, his, you know, kind of fellow creatures. And I think that's what makes him so formidable a villain is that he's not just dumb. Uh, he's actually a pretty intelligent villain um, conspiring in this case, even against the woman who should be healing him. Right. Yeah. It really just shows why Clooney is the leader. He is way more cunning and ruthless than the other rodents. And um, I think that Jake's does a really good job of highlighting this and future interactions that we kind of see with uh, Clooney and Sela. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's spot on. I, I really commend Jake's for like including this kind of cleverness in, in who has been pretty straightforward evil, <laughs> you know, like right. um, I, I think it's a really nice development of Clooney's story. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, concept of Clooney kind of making fake plans um, 
as we see, you know, later on in, in this book, um, it, it just, I think, speaks to his capability as just a bad guy. Yeah, and we, I guess we get a little glimpse of it too with him coming up with the, uh, hatching the plan of like putting the plank in the tree and trying to cross the Abbey Wall. Like he definitely is very methodical of what he's doing. I'm not saying he's brilliant by any means because his his plan clearly didn't work. Like the whole reason why he's injured is because they just knocked the plank off. But um, I, I do, yeah, I, I, I like that Jake's includes these um, little moments of showing Clooney's cleverness. So in chapter six, Matthias and Methuselah continue their investigation of Redwall's secrets, and they discover Martin's tomb. There, Matthias gathers Martin's ancient shield and sword belt, but they find that the sword itself is still missing. You see, it just would have been too easy <laughs> if the sword was in there, too. It would have just been way too convenient. Right. We couldn't really name the entire book uh, The Quest, right? If oh, yeah. the quests were just so easy. Well, that was easy. Right. But I do love that they they actually do find Martin's uh, tomb. Um, I, I can't remember if it ever shows up again in another book. Um, but it, it feels like this grand moment. You know, they, they discover... Um, another series of clues that, you know, lead them into the tomb. Uh, and there's even some discussion about like who can enter the tomb, right? Like who's allowed. Uh, and I just love this, this sequence where they've kind of discovered this great secret. Um, and even though the answer to their, their riddle isn't necessarily inside, they get much closer. Um, and there's mm -hmm. this, you know, kind of like this moment of like suiting up as the warrior, like Matthias has to collect all the pieces of the puzzle before he can really call himself a warrior mouse. Yeah. And we get a little bit of a soft magic with Matthias. Well, I don't know. I read it as soft magic when he steps in the tomb, he's like re-embodied as Martin in, in Methuselah's eyes. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, We've we've seen a change in Matthias, obviously turning into this this warrior. But when he steps into the tomb, it's like he is Martin, which has to do with the answer to get into the tomb, the um, it, it, part of the riddle. But yeah, I, I I did think that that was kind of I don't know. It was it was interesting to see this um, uh, more I don't know transformation, this more um, heavy handed transformation of Matthias. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a really. Am I remembering that, that right? Did I dream this up? This that, that happens in this chapter, right? No, no, you're you're absolutely okay, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. You. Yeah. Because there, there's the whole, you know, like only I am that is, uh, can enter into the the tomb, and and then you know Matthias is kind of like I get to I get to make the calls, you know, like, um, if I am I am that is, you know, I get to I get to enter this room. Um, and I can take whoever right. I want with me. Uh, yeah, I just I wanted to check to make sure that I wasn't having um, Martin the Warrior dreams like Clooney. That would be a little uh, terrifying. <laughs> no, I'm I'm pretty sure you're right. So in, in Chapter 7, Constance has an encounter with Chicken Hound, uh, who's come to the Abbey and says that he has information for the, the Abbot. Constance recognizes the trick, 
and tells Chickenhound that the abbot is going to meet Sela in two days in Mossflower Wood. Meanwhile, Matthias dines with Basil Staghair, who's recently returned to the abbey, while he ponders the latest of Martin's riddles. Outside, Methuselah has found the next clue to Martin's riddle, and Constance reveals the solution to the next stage of their quest. So there's this big question of like, so why is Martin's stuff there, but the sword isn't? Like the sword belt's there, the shield's there, but the scabbard and the sword itself are gone. And that's part, again, of the journey. It's like, yeah, sure, maybe you made it into the tomb, but there's still more that you must do. And by each step, you declare yourself, you know, more and more a worthy heir to this sword. Yeah, and the interaction between Methuselah, Matthias, and Constance about this second, the solution to the second riddle, um, or the discovery of what the second riddle is, um, I, I really like that now more people in the Abbey are getting involved. Even Basil, while he's just snarfing down uh, salads and breads and tarts and pastries, um, who has he has an unending appetite, which is just a great little character moment for Basil. <laughs> I just really like that now more people are getting involved in this quest and like Constance is finding the solution and um, uh, Matthias is getting help from other people. I think that this is another part of that warrior's quest. It's not like you're just doing it all on your own, but you are getting help from friends. You you are getting help with, with, from those that are around you. Uh, it's a really cool touch. I think you bring up a good point too that I hadn't really considered, but I mean, there seems to be this this contemplation of like what makes a hero, Right. And, and that is a question that's going to be posed throughout the book. You know, what is a hero? What makes a hero? And I think that we begin to see that part of the heroic ethos for Jake's is a reliance on the community of friends that you've built. Um, the whole point of getting a warrior mouse in the, the first place is to protect the interests of the Abbey. Um, and I think that without the people or or not the people but without the creatures of the abbey there is no abbey and that begins to play into a lot more of the lesson that i think matthias has to learn as he endeavors to resolve this quest yeah i think you're totally right so in chapter eight uh we return back to Clooney's camp of course and Clooney begins to suspect that sila is acting as a double agent and so he constructs a fake diagram of his attack on Redwall. Believing Clooney to have taken a sleeping drug, Sela steals the fake plans for invasion while Clooney secretly plots to dig a tunnel into Redwall. Yeah, Clooney really is like a carpenter in this, uh, a carpenter making stairs in this interaction. He's always thinking ahead. He knows exactly how to trick Sela. he knows that she's going to go for the the bait um I, again this is just a great character moment for Clooney and just shows how clever he is and how he is in control of this situation like like we said it doesn't always end how he thinks it's going to end but i i gotta commend his cleverness in this he's really playing to the um characters uh, he's playing to the trickery of Sela in order to kind of 
deliver a blow against Abby. Like it, it is really smart of him to be doing this. Yeah, I think too, it's great because we see that Clooney is really like planning a multi-stage attack. He recognizes that right. brute force isn't just going to get him into the Abbey. So he's got to use subterfuge and he's got to have not just two plans, but maybe even three plans. You know, oh, I can't wait to talk about that third plan. The third plan is pretty great. Yeah. So chapter nine, Matthias and Methuselah have solved Martin's riddle and plan to find the final resting place of Martin's sword. They discover it's hidden in the Abbey weather vane at the top of the roof. So with the help of Jess Squirrel, who is Silent Sam's mother, they approach the sword only to discover that the sword is missing. Jess is suddenly harried by the sparrow population living at the top of the Abbey. And after a short skirmish, they capture a wounded sparrow named Warbeak. Yeah, this is a pretty long chapter, if I remember right. And there's a lot of things that happen in here um, that, again, kind of goes off that that theme of other people having to help out. And we, when we see Jess climbing up to um, check the weather vane, it's all through the point of view from those on the ground. Yes. And they see her in the battle with the, the um, with the sparrows. They see her struggling to kind of fend fend her way against the wind and stuff like um, it, it's it's kind of an action packed uh, yeah. chapter um, from this limited point of view. And you don't really know that the the sword's not there until the end. And so that is another kind of like, ah, kind of a let down. Like it, it couldn't have been that easy. Obviously, we need to go on the quest more. But um, I really enjoyed this chapter. I think this was a good one. I think the pacing was really good. Um, I mentioned earlier, but the solve for the um, the sword on the weather vane is that um, they use Martin's shield to reflect the moonlight to know that's where the yeah. sword is, which is just really clever. Um, yeah. I mentioned this is very reminiscent of the um, the key to the side door in, in the Lonely Mountain yes. in The Hobbit, where the moon kind of shows where the, the key goes in. It feels very reminiscent of that. Yeah, I think that's just kind of a classic trope, right? Um, being in the right place at the right time, uh, using the natural elements around you, you know, as part of this, uh, like puzzle solving experience. Um, this is one of those fantasy tropes that for me, just like, I don't want it to ever die. Like, I absolutely... Yeah, it's a little bit of a comfort, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love... I mean, there, there are some times when I think it's like, all right, that was just clearly the absolute worst way you could incorporate this trope. I'm thinking of <laughs> star Wars episode nine in particular. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it's like I hid the sword up on the weather vane and you're only going to figure that out is if you put my shield in this certain little stone and a certain point of the year. And I just think like, yeah, okay, sure. Let's go. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Yeah, it, you're right. It's totally a trope, but it's like I said, it's kind of like a comfort trope. I I really love it. It, it reminds me of, of the Hobbit, and um, yeah, yeah. I, I I had a lot of fun with this. Um, one yeah. thing I did want to mention real quick about Jess the squirrel is that she kind of comes out of nowhere too. Like they're just like, how can we get up there? And then they're like, why don't we just ask the the squirrel to do it? And Jess comes out, and she kind of has a crucial 
place in the Abbey from here on out. She yeah. um, is very clearly brave because she's, you know, climbing up this, this towering um, portion of the, the Abbey to find uh, or to check for the sword. Um, and she's fending off these sparrows. Like she really just dives right into the fray of what's going on in the Abbey and, and to join the quest. Um, it's, it's a really cool inclusion. And I, and I remember just the squirrel from, my first read and I knew that she came at some point, but then I was like, Oh, <laughs> there she is. Yeah. She just shows up. Yeah. She just follows uh, silent Sam. And like, there's a, a quick reference like, Oh yeah. Sam's uh, parents showed up. Uh, and then, you know, they're like, well, who yeah. can climb this, this wall? Why don't we just ask Jess? <laughs> and I, I love Jess's inclusion from here on out because she does yeah, me too. Play a pretty prominent role in a lot of the side action for the rest of the book. And I think she's kind of the, the archetype for a squirrel. Uh, one of the reasons why the squirrels are my favorites <laughs> um, is because they, you know, just have this like great kind of ac acrobatic um, prowess and, and they really are like just creatures of action. I really love it. Yeah, that's a I, good point. And I, I agree. It is it is an archetype that I really like. So maybe I'm just like anti-Fox. I don't know. I, I need to <laughs> lose my mind. Um, I also think it's really interesting that we get introduced to the sparrows here. Uh, they hadn't really been much of a presence in the book. Uh, and yet they become a very important part of this Abbey lore uh, until the end of the book. Um, I don't recall there being very many birds in the entire Redwall series, but Warbeak is a very interesting character. And I think that the sparrows themselves, the sparrow society is really interesting in distinction to a lot of the, the Redwall society that we see. Yeah. I'm curious to um, going forward to, reflect back on on that because i i like the sparrows they do seem kind of out of place um and we'll get to that in my thoughts on that in, in a few chapters um but the way that they they have their own dialect that's so much different than some of the other um abbey creatures or the moss flower creatures um and how they're just immediately violent too like warbeak is just saying killy 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 over again because um, she wants to, to kill uh, Matthias, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it, they they just feel different from the other the other creatures there. Um, Absolutely. Chapter ten, uh, we see Sela plots against Clooney to deliver news of his invasion plans and makes up an excuse to go to Moss Flower. Clooney sends two guards to watch over her, Redtooth and Fangburn, but she easily gives them the slip and approaches her meeting spot outside of Redwall Abbey. Remember, she thinks she's meeting with Abbot Mortimer, which is why it's a surprise when Constance is there waiting in ambush and she gives Sela a drubbing and steals the information Sela planned to tell, or planned to sell, rather. The badger spots Redtooth. Remember, Redtooth at this point is Clooney's second-in-command. And Sela's clearly got a beef with Redtooth from the earlier inv invasion. So she taunts him into a fight 
which results in Red Tooth's brutal death. Absolutely uh, brutal death. It's absolutely brutal. Uh, but then Sela and Fangburn decide on a story to tell Clooney in order to hide the truth of what really happened to Red Tooth. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to un- unpack in, in this one. First, I have if I was commending Clooney for his cleverness in the the fake note to Sela, um, we got to give props to, to Constance for her cleverness to know that this was a trap and um, to even bait Red Tooth into this fight. It it really just goes to show her her strength, her prowess, but also her cleverness in this situation. Um, Jace is in so little words um, describes such a brutal death when he says, you know, <laughs> Red Tooth would have flown the furthest out of any animal tossed <laughs> if it wasn't for the giant like oak that was in the way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they later kind of describe his body just being like mangled up into the, you know, the the uh, trunk of the tree. Um, just brutal. I, I was reading this and I kind of had to stop and be like, oh my gosh, like, I don't, would I read this to my son? Like, would I, I guess I have to, right? If I'm reading this to him, it's gotta be this uncensored, is, but this is, it's, it's graphic. Yeah. This is one of the things that I think always kind of strikes me about Jake's violence is that it's, it's both absolutely bloodless and yet unflinchingly brutal. Yes, and, you're right. And I think that this is one of those instances where it's quite funny. Um, we, you know, like you say, when you think about it, she just hammer throws him into a tree. Um, and <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I, there's just something like absolutely brutal <laughs> thinking about how uh, she just like totally wrecks this stupid rat. Um, she suffers some some wounds herself. Um, she does and, get wounded. That's a good point. Yeah. And there are, there are some other absolutely brutal deaths in, in this book. You know, uh, we talked about shadow, um, just absolutely eating it <laughs> as he's thrown over a wall. Um, we right. talked about, uh, scrag getting like strangled, just strangled to death, um, by cheese thief. Um, and here we have red tooth, uh, just getting thrown into a tree and there's some other particularly brutal deaths later in the book um, that we'll kind of save to talk about. But it, it really does strike me just how absolutely violent this book is. And I wonder sometimes about how that would ever be represented in other media, because yeah. we make the presumption that this is for children and yet Jake's doesn't shy from from the violence. He doesn't shy from, um, you know, showing these absolutely uh, terrible moments of violence. Yeah, you're totally right, for sure. And I we can probably talk about this at a different time. But I do think that um, like American um, children versus children in parts of Europe, we're we're a little bit more sensitized to violence especially with kids here in the u.s so um which is kind of ironic in a way but we won't get into that um but i i think that maybe that's why we kind of look at this and be like i don't know would this be like okay for kids but you're you're totally right it's the the our imagination is the thing adding the 
the violence to it because um, it, he really doesn't describe much. I guess Scrags getting strangled is pretty rough too, but um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do a bonus episode talking about the violence of, uh, of these <laughs> I mean, I, for, for my notes, I actually counted uh, how many confirmed deaths are in this book, uh, meaning like how many characters are explicitly explained to be dead. And then I also counted in addition to the confirmed, like we see these creatures die in front of us, uh, the insinuated death toll of the entire book based on some of the descriptions of like, you know, sometimes he'll say many, you know, laid about dead or, you know, Mm -hmm. dozens had died. So I kind of count up a, a conservative estimate of, of the total death toll in this book. And, uh, just spoiler alert it's a lot it's, it's so <laughs> yeah we should we should do an over under game for the death toll um in our <laughs> big review episode i think that'd be great yeah. well let's go ahead and take a quick moment of silence for the lost lives <laughs> the lost <laughs> the life of, of red tooth uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins with Constant talking about the intelligence she's now collected. Uh, Redwall knows that Clooney is likely to attack soon. So Matthias and Methuselah puzzle over what must have happened to the sword, and Methuselah surmises that it might have been stolen by the sparrows based on a story they told him way long ago. So he goes and and talks with Matthias in front of Warbeak, and together they trick her into revealing that her chief, King Bolspera, has a magnificent sword he will use to kill all of the mice of Redwall. Yeah, I we're starting to get more interactions with Warbeak, um, and I love that the cleverness is now coming from um methuselah i think this is a great way to kind of confirm this story this legend and to get a better idea as to where the sword is as the next part of the quest but because before this the trail has really gone cold they don't really know what to do next and so it's really clever clever that methuselah hatches this plan and now warbeak doesn't know it but she is she is just involved into it and Credit to Brian Jakes because he actually tells us pretty much straight up in the earliest uh, part of this book, you know, even before they go looking for the sword, uh, he pretty much tells us that the sparrows have it. He alludes to this story that, you know, we revisit in this chapter. Yeah, you're right. And I kind of forgot about that too. Yeah, we learned in, um, in book one that um when he was uh rehabil- rehabilitating a hawk that the hawk told him that the sparrows have it so it's kind of funny that they take all this time to go and find the sword when they should have known it's not there you know like i guess uh good to cite your sources but if it wasn't for all the steps that they took they wouldn't have Warbeak to confirm this so it is kind of showing you know that journey the circumstance of that journey um but yeah i, I totally forgot that we already know the answer to this 
Yeah. So in chapter 12, Sila and Fangburn make their excuse to Clooney about the disappearance of Redtooth, and Clooney revels in his superiority because he knows Sila stole his plans and that those plans were incomplete. Meanwhile, Asmodeus consumes the dead body of Redtooth out in Mossflower Woods. Oh my gosh, Asmodeus is just on a, a buffet with all these dead vermin <laughs> of Clooney's horde. He, he doesn't have to do any kind of hunting, does he? He can just eat all these yeah. bloated, gross corpse uh, corpses out in the woods. One of the things that I love about this whole book is that we definitely see the antagonism and the rivalry between, you know, Redwall and Clooney's Horde. But in the background mm -hmm. is always circling Asmodeus. And we get the sense of just his lingering menace. We never know when he's just going to show up and strike. Yeah, you're totally right. Asmodeus is always out there circling. Um I also couldn't help but feel like Sela's fate is sealed in this chapter. Yes. Um, Clooney yep. revealing to her that he was all just part of this ploy, um, her not having any way to get out of it. We're not going to have Sela for very much longer. And yeah. I think anyone reading this for the first time can see that this is not looking good for her. Yeah. It really begs the question of when, exactly Clooney had decided that she was just going to be a tool for him and then he was going to dispose of her yeah um, for sure yeah. I almost feel bad for Sila except we know that Sila's not really a good person <laughs> yeah and that's that's the thing I have in my notes here there's really no redemption for Sila in this and maybe that's why I just I'm 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 supposed to dislike her. I'm supposed to dislike yeah. what she's doing. I do kind of feel bad, I guess, in the fact that I think that she's doing this for her own um, survival. Like she's just trying to play both sides so that she comes out as the victor. Um, yeah. But Jake doesn't really paint any of that though. That's the thing. He, he really just paints her as this, this bad guy who gets what she deserves. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I, I really do want to stress to our readers that Sela is more important to this series than I think we really anticipate at this very moment. Um, what happens with Sela and with Clooney is going to have repercussions later down the road that I think uh, is really interesting to the, the development of the lore of Redwall on the whole. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not aware of that. I'm excited to go on that journey as well. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Chapter 13, um, using sisters, Sister Germaine's old blueprints of Redwall Abbey, Methuselah discovers a path to enter Redwall Abbey's top attic, where the mice believe the sparrows must live. Matthias begins conditioning Warbeak to accept his company, and the two make their way through the abbey up toward the attic. Warbeak makes an attempt on Matthias's life, but Matthias fights back, and in their battle, he threatens to kill Warbeak if necessary, and the two strike a friendship forged through their mutual respect for one another's abilities. Meanwhile, Clooney plots to tunnel underneath Redwall Abbey, 
Sila and Chickenhound are caught in an act of espionage against Clooney and finally taken prisoner. Man, we knew it was coming, right? We <laughs> we knew the, we knew Clooney was not going to let that this happen. Um, this is another really packed uh, chapter because a few things happen. We get um, uh, we get this kind of idea that Matthias is like um, leading Warbeak on with the candied chestnuts, which. Um, she cannot resist. She wants these chestnuts, these candy chestnuts. And um, he kind of uses that as a way to get her to go along with the journey. But then they have this kind of struggle of wits, as you mentioned, for the mutual respect. I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that, because when I first read it, I was like, man, Matthias is just going off. Like I, he turned, he, he pulls the dagger, Shadow's dagger, remember? He yeah. pulls that around on, on Warbeak and says, if you try that again, I'm going to just kill you here. I'll make this journey on my own and she's just kind of like hold up you know like she she doesn't really like that at all and I, I i originally thought like man matthias is just popping off for no reason like i mean th there's better ways to probably solve this than um this display with with the knife but that is the thing that kind of brings their bond together yeah i'm, I'm just i'm curious to hear, hear your thoughts on it i mean i have a I have complicated thoughts about Matthias's journey because I, I don't necessarily think that Matthias always makes the right decisions, but right. I, also I think, think this that, is a bad decision on his part. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I, I don't think he really handles this that well. And that's why I'm kind of surprised that this is what um, Jake's uses as a bonding between the two of them. I think for me, it is intended as a way to kind of show that Matthias's whole thing is like he speaks the language of the creatures around him. So he adapts, for example, to Basil's um, style of guerrilla warfare very quickly. He adapts to the Spera language very quickly. And as part of that, I think that kind of cultural observation, he realizes that the sparrows are a very warlike society and in order to earn respect you must show strength and so that's kind of what he does he shows strength um now again i don't necessarily think that this is what we're supposed to take away as like especially heroic um but it is the way that matthias kind of establishes himself as an authority and in that moment, Warbeak sees him not as an antagonist, but really as a force to be reckoned with and grants him the respect that he wants of her. And from that moment forward, they have a friendship that I think endures. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. I, I didn't really think about it as like him adapting to the, the animals because you're totally right with Basil. He just jumps into the the um hair kind of guerrilla warfare and with how ruthless she is i mean the first thing she says to matthias is i want to kill you is is killy killy so yeah i guess that makes sense that he kind of turns around and uses that same language with her saying like hey i'll i'll kill you too if i have to but um i also wonder if he's also just trying to get her to realize that they're in this together like you're with me mm -hmm. i'm with you um we see uh matthias has kind of a close call where he drops the dagger he's about to fall and warbeak backs him up and helps yeah. him out and kind of saves him and i i guess that's maybe another 
way that Jake's just tries to kind of tie their friendship is that they, in order right. for them to get to their goal, they kind of have to like work with each other. And Matthias is just uh, is setting that straight. But um, I love that take though. I think that's a really good, good point with Matthias. And I'm going to be looking out for that a little bit more as we talk more about Matthias. Cause I think you're right. He kind of speaks the language of the creatures he's interacting with. Um, and, and that's uh, kind of part of his character uh, or, or mm-hmm. journey. I think too, it's really important to note that Matthias does show restraint, right? He kind of does. He kind of gets on her level for a moment and, and kind of says like, you know, this is a no win situation. I lose something by killing you. You lose everything if I kill you, (laughs) you know? And, and so in a a sense, him showing mercy um, kind of demonstrates that like, if, if we just stick to spitting violence at one another, we get nowhere. Um, and so he kind of cuts through some of her attitude. And I think, I think she gets it, you know, like, I think she changes through that experience too. Um, and becomes more cognizant of the power of, of life and death, you know, and like how to use and wield power, which is a very important, again, an important aspect of the entire hero's journey for Matthias is what is power and how do we utilize it? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right. So in chapter 14, Matthias continues his friendship with Warbeak and finally lets the Sparrow out of his uh, captivity. As they prepare to ascend further into the Abbey though, Matthias is ambushed by other sparrows and brought to King Bull Sparrow. This is the perfect time to start playing Crazy Train because <laughs> the King Bull Sparrow co- court is nuts. So even the introduction <laughs> we have for it is absolute madness. They pin him to the door and they're they're all there. I had a really hard time visualizing this. I'm really curious as to how they're going to kind of do this in like the Netflix adaptation of where we look at the PBS um, show, but my gosh, this is, they are incredibly hostile. Just to start the, the madness of the court is about the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a fun little, you know, deepening of the stakes and, uh, uh, it's a fun wrinkle, I think. I, I actually enjoy some of the parts with the the Sparrow Court. I don't like King Bull Sparrow at all. Um, right. I, I know we're not supposed to, uh, but he's like the one kind of mini antagonist of this story that I really just never cared very much for. I think this is the most memorable part of Redwall, in my opinion. And I'm curious to talk with our friends Tiff and William about this in our in our um, book review episode. But mm. this is the one that I remember the most from the first time that I, I read this. And one that, like, um, it, it's just very memorable to me. I, it really stands out. Mm. Oddly enough, though, I don't know if that's, that's true for everyone because I couldn't find any art on this. I couldn't find mm. no one was doing any kind of art on this. No one. There's only stills from uh, of like the uh, King, uh, sorry, King uh, Bull Sparrow's court. Um, there's only stills from the show about this. And I think mm. the show goes over it pretty quickly. But um, yeah, this, uh, this, kind of like what you're saying trevor this does stand out so much more from all the other creatures and it it does raise the stakes a lot because 
they're just crazy. This is <laughs> the craziness <laughs> is about about to begin. Yeah. So um, in chapter 15, Clooney finally has Sila executed and Chicken Hound is also grievously wounded in an in attempt to execute him as well. Um, this is probably one of the most horrifying deaths of the entire book. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Uh, but Chicken Hound escapes to Redwall where he pleads for help inside the abbey. The abbot and others attend to his wounds and begin nursing him to health. And he tells them about Clooney's plans to tunnel under the abbey walls for an invasion and then plots on his own to plunder Redwall for himself. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this chapter, Trev. I'll let you start because um, I have a lot of hot takes about this, but you go first. This is the most horrifying death, I think, of the entire book. I mean, there there are some some terrifying deaths, um, but I mean, Sela and Chickenhound are just stabbed with spears and thrown into a ditch to die, um, and and Chickenhound actually only survives because his mother, his mother's dead corpse falls on top of him, and then he waits for the rats to leave until he can escape. And I think that this is the most brutal, um, like emotionless death of the entire book in terms of, of the, the murderers who did it, right? That like the, the rats who kill Sila, absolutely no remorse. Um, and yet it is the most emotionally scarring book or, or death of the whole book um, in terms of, of how it affects the other characters. Um, this is essentially chicken hounds villain origin story. And it has to be right. <laughs> yeah. It just has to be. Yeah. And it's like um, it really of, of all of the many deaths in this book. Like I, I forgot how Clooney died. Um, I've read this book two times before this reread and I had both times just forgotten how Clooney had died. Um, Spoiler alert. (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) But, but you know, even though I had forgotten how Clooney died, I remember Sela's death vividly. I do too. Yeah, I I do too. And um, I, I don't like that. I understand later why Jake's does what he does, but I really do not like this chapter because of how graphic it is. Like you said, um, her body, the imagery of her body being over chicken hound and that he only survived because um, the spear pierced through the nape of his neck, um, kind of the skin of his neck. Oh God. Um, Yeah. Which, which is, they, they say that people get injuries and they're kind of like slashed in the back or whatever, but he's very specific about how this injury happens. And that kind of plays into chicken hound as well. I just don't like how chicken hound hound gets up and has no remorse for his mom. Doesn't even think about it at all. Starts laughing to himself and goes on with his new plot. And I just feel like it's so cold and callous because of how graphic this is for Sela. I know we're not supposed to like Sela and I know that we're not supposed to like she's just i don't know kind of kind of one note but i the fact that there's like 
he just kind of lays this on us of this graphic death and then just like, okay, we're moving on. I, it really just didn't sit right with me. I don't like this chapter. I did not like this and it it did scar me. Like not like uh, super emotionally, but it is what you're saying. I remember this more than I remember Clooney's death. I remember this more than um, what happens to really any of the animals. Um, There, there are two deaths um, in this book that I remember vividly every time. And it's, it's Sila and it's Gaussum and we'll get to Gaussum. Oh, Gaussum. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, you're right. I mean, the, it is a scarring uh, moment. I have a little bit more sympathy for Sila um, because I don't think she's just as Looney Tunes cartoonishly villainous as chicken hound. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, but, but you're totally right. I mean, like chicken hound really just doesn't even feel anything other than contempt for his dead mother. I think we should revisit this because I, I think that as we get into the further stories, we need to come back to this moment because like you said, it does play a lot into further books from, from what I understand. And I, yeah. I only learned that, I only sought out to understand that because of how much I disliked this chapter where I was like, I gotta know why, why? <laughs> uh, know. I mean, yeah, this, this, I don't want to spoiler a later book, uh, you know, even though this is a spoiler podcast, but if you're reading along, just, just understand this is a villain origin story right here. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. it's one of the most brutal inclusions of any of these books. So in chapter 16, Matthias is taken prisoner by the sparrows and begins to learn more about their society. He's taken into custody by Warbeak's mother, Dunwing, who is sympathetic to Matthias's plight. Matthias begins to study King Bull Sparrow's habits and discovers that the king has Martin's scabbard in his possession. Dunwing tells Matthias the truth about the sword, though that King Bullsparrow lost the sword to Asmodeus Poison Teeth in a battle long ago. King Bullsparrow steals Matthias's belt and threatens Matthias's life, but Matthias plots to get both belt and scabbard back before too long. Yeah, this is a really long chapter where a lot of things happen, and I couldn't help but feeling during this chapter that Matthias is thinking on his feet for everything that's going on. Yes. He starts to play as like a madman in order to make Bull Sparrow not sorry, King Bull Sparrow not think that he's a threat, which is incredibly clever of Matthias. And Dunwing kind of clues in that Matthias is there for another reason too. So it's kind of unclear like what her motivation is for this at this point, but there's a lot of like, um, there's just a lot of nuance going on with the the interactions between these characters. This is why the, the court, um, the kind of kingdom for the, the sparrows is so much different than anything we've (laughs) seen before. And I, I think Matthias really shines in this. I love his remark at the very end of being like, might as well give him the belt because I'm going to steal the scabbard. I'll just steal the belt (laughs) with the scabbard. Like it kind of just shows like, you know, Matthias kind of has a plan, but he's definitely thinking on his feet. I think what stands out to me about this particular chapter and the sparrow, the court of sparrows to begin with is just, this is a, 
a real example of how corruptive power can be. And we see that King Bullspera does not know how to wield his power effectively. And the people that he rules over do not respect or like him for it. (laughs) I think you're right. Like he is kind of a, a mad King as a, as a ploy for why he's King. Like even Dunwing brings that up. I don't know if she brings it up in this chapter, but I think she brings it up with Matthias. Like you're playing dumb, but so is bull King Sparrow. He's doing the same thing. Everyone Mm -hmm. thinks he's a mad King, but he's a lot more clever than you think he is. Um, I, there's just lots of really enriching interactions that happen here. Um, especially with Dunwing and Warbeak and how Dunwing, uh, is sympathetic to Matthias because he helped out Warbeak. He thought that, or, uh, she thought that Warbeak was gone for forever. So she's, she's really sympathetic of that. Um, we also see just how ravenous the, um, sparrows are for the candy chestnuts. chestnuts, He brings, (laughs) they break open his bag. They're going for it. They're eating them. And then he later uses that as kind of a parlay with, uh, King bull sparrow. It doesn't really work in his favor, but it gives him enough time to try to see what's in his chamber, which is, um, or his, his nesting. And that's the, um, that's the scabbard. So yeah. uh, I love that. That's the inclusion. They kind of talk about through Warbeak. Uh, sorry, Jake's kind of talks about with Warbeak how she is obsessed with these candy chestnuts, and of course, everyone else <laughs> is when they when it gets there. Uh, it's very right. clever. So in chapter seventeen, Jess Squirrel and Basil Staghair come up with a plan to rescue the Martin Tapestry from Clooney. Together, they set out to infiltrate Clooney's army. And while Clooney is in the process of training his army for their next stage of invasion, Basil and Jess appear. Basil suggests a minor, uh, I'm sorry, Basil suffers a minor injury in the attempt to get the tapestry. But with Jess's help, the two manage to steal it from Clooney and make their way triumphantly back to Redwall. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, this little side pairing that happens here. I so I I've already mentioned I love Basil Stag hair. I love Jess. So you pair the two of them together, and this is like my side character dream team. Um because like Basil like disguises himself as a rat for a moment, and then like he just kind of comes yeah. up <laughs> and just like beats the crap out of them. And uh and then like she and or he and and Jess kind of get overwhelmed and they come up with a, with a plan like on the fly to, to basically split up Clooney's attention and, and like get away. Yeah, it's, you're totally right. And um, I, I'm like a a Basil evangelist because I did (laughs) not really think of him much in my first reread. But then when I read this, I was like, oh man, I am so excited for this because (laughs) I have this newfound appreciation for Basil. I think it's so clever that he baits Clooney to attack him with the um, with the banner with the standard, so yeah. that he can just can grab the tapestry. And it's so clever how they work together in doing that. But he does suffer an injury too, so it's not like Basil is just 
um, completely unaware of the dangers of what they're doing. He's very much aware. And he even kind of gives Jess an opportunity where he says, Hey, you should get out of here. I'll fend them off. And she's like, no, there's, we're not doing that. And we'll, we'll figure out a way to get out of this together. And so I, I know that Basil is often super like, um, he's very, um, light and jovial and uh, he never seems like he takes things too seriously but he's kind of ready at this time to lay down his life to to defend jess so that she can get away it just shows so much depth and character to basil the fact that he's this warrior the fact that he's the soldier that does this that he's he's ready to die for his comrades it's just really cool basil is shooting up the toss of the top of my uh tier list for favorite characters (laughs) um i love basil I know. I completely agree. Uh, Basil is, you know, the hair that sets the archetype for the whole rest of the series. Um, and I, that's great. I, I want more of it. Yeah, no, he's, he's such an entertaining character. Um, and yet, you know, when he suffers this minor injury, like there's a real sense that like Basil and Jess could lose their lives in this endeavor. Um, yeah, James sure. does a great job of selling us on you know the idea that like these two could end up not making it through the rest of the book yeah yeah he definitely suspends that for a little bit in this chapter um i also like that jakes writes this we i mean we have these little um side chapters that are happening of what's going on at the abbey while matthias is on his quest but i love that they set out to do this um that that basil and jess go and do this together because yeah. it's such a big win for the Abbey. It's, it would, you know, there's, it would completely turn the tides of this upcoming battle. It would <laughs> piss Clooney off to do this. Like, <laughs> I just really think that is, it's, it's a really enriching chapter. And uh, I think this might be one of my favorite that we see, especially oh, yeah. in, um, in this uh, book too. I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Hands, hands down. Uh, one of my favorites of book two. Yeah. So in chapter 18, Dunwing reveals an escape plan for Matthias, which involves a ploy to convince King Bolspera that Poison Teeth has died and has the sword with him out in Mossflower Wood. King Bolspera leaves the abbey on the war hunt, and Matthias steals back his belt and scabbard. Dunwing helps Matthias out of the sparrow nest back to the abbey, where Jess Squirrel launches a rescue attempt. But before Jess can arrive, King Bull Sparrow returns in time to attack Matthias, and the two of them plunge in a deathlock from the Redwall roof. What a cliffhanger. Um, this is a uh, this this chapter has a lot going on with it. Um, a lot of action kind of similar to the the last ones that we've seen with king bull sparrow um but um, i maybe i'm the only one to think this i thought the scaling of him to the roof was incredibly confusing i don't know if it's jake's writing in this in the way that he's like kind of describing things it also might be because i'm just a bonehead reader and i just don't know what's going (laughs) on but i just had a very difficult time uh kind of understanding how they're getting out the window to scale to the top of, of the abbey and what's going on here um even the entanglement with how uh with matthias and king bolsparrow i understand that he's going for the scabbard and he kind of gets locked up in the belt but it is just very it's a very confusing um 
set of kind of action pieces that happen in this chapter. I don't know. I, I don't know if you had the same thoughts on it, but I I have the same general thoughts um, because I I don't have like a a blueprint of the Abbey right in front of me. Um, and so it's kind of hard to envision this space, but I kind of got this sense that like, you know, there's, there's an exit from the, the attic, um, that just leaps into space. Um, almost like a, like I would envision it like a hangar bay, you know, like where you just like launch airplanes out or, or, you know, starships or whatever it is, right. You just like drop them out into into the air and then hope that they use the momentum to take off. Cause they're birds. They don't really need anything right. more than mm-hmm. open air to take off. So I kind of got the sense that that led out into like the, the Abbey walls. And from there they kind of scaled to some of the roofing. Um, but it is really confusing and, and I don't have a great picture of that. I get a better, a clear picture once they get out onto the eaves and then into the roof. Um, yeah, I, and, I do too. King yeah. Bull Sparrow comes swooping down. I get a great sense of that action together and kind of the entanglement as they're plummeting together, you know, in this kind of death, death grip. I, I'll be honest. I had to reread the, the entanglement cause I just, I couldn't, I couldn't in my mind's on kind of the theater of the mind get, get understand what was going on, but the general premise is that he gets tangled up and they fall off the roof together, which I get that. It's also correct me if I'm wrong. It's from Jess's point of view too, right? She yeah. sees him falling. Yeah. So that kind of contributes to it. Yeah. In chapter 19, chicken hound begins stealing baubles from Redwall and is caught in the act by Methuselah. In a hurry, the fox smashes Methuselah in the head and kills him, then rushes off into Mossflower to escape retribution. While hiding, Chicken Hound has a confrontation with Asmodeus. Meanwhile, the Abbey is struggling with the loss of Methuselah and Matthias, but nobody can find Matthias's body. Brother Alf and Constance go to the Abbey pond and discover King Bull Spera's body. Soon after, they also discover Matthias, and Abbot Mortimer manages to administer aid, and Matthias is still alive. Yeah, not really a shock about Matthias being alive. Like, I feel like you can't really kill off Matthias and know that there's a good, you know, 150 pages or whatever left in the book. But um, the death of Methuselah hit me pretty hard, I'm not going to lie. Um, I just did not know that I, I guess I forgot about this and this is another instance where Jake's is kind of riding a brutal death. Chicken mm-hmm. hound hits him with the bag and he just like falls to the ground and that's it. Like yeah. there's no like, Oh, he struggled for a little bit. It's like, he's out cold. He's gone. He's an, yeah. an old mouse and he's just done. Um, I really dislike chicken hound for this. And I know, <laughs> know that's intentional, but this, this death really caught me out of nowhere. I, I forgot that it happened in my reread reading it. I, you know, I'm kind of experiencing this over again. I'm like, Oh man, yeah. this is, there's no red herring here for this. It's he's just gone. Yeah. Um, now 
uh, going back to the death supposed death of matthias like i knew that matthias wasn't dead obviously um <laughs> but the fact that king volsparo also just dies he drowns in the water in his entanglement with matthias um and um it's never really explained what happened there it's not really explained why he died i mean a, a bird in water is never a, a super great thing anyways but um yeah, yeah it, it, i found that really interesting that they're just like oh yeah he's dead Matthias never really talks about what happened. I'm assuming uh, King Volsparo kind of helps Matthias to stay alive in the fact that he maybe slows the descent and they fall into the water and, you know, Matthias is still injured. But I, I always <clears throat> I always got the sense that like King Volsparo dies on impact, like they, they fall out of the, the oh, sky together and uh, he absorbs the majority of the impact and and like dies instantly uh whereas matthias is is kind of tossed into the water and then kind of like washes up um that that was always the sense that i got was that you know king bullspear yeah, died on impact and and his absorbing the impact or his taking it uh meant that matthias could live yeah i think that's fair yeah I, I, and that makes sense to me um the other thing that i really like in this chapter well i shouldn't say really like because i didn't like that you know <laughs> Methuselah. so <laughs> there's not a lot of i guess the only thing i liked <laughs> in this chapter um is the otters we get kind of the seal yeah. team six of the otters and they go diving <laughs> into the pond and it's just yeah. really cool again we kind of see these animals come out with their specialties and the otters are these acrobats they're these entertainers but then they're also these like navy seals and they're able to go through and um find yeah. find matthias honestly i don't think that redwall does a great job introducing the otters because they they don't play a, a very major role at all uh but when we get to moss flower i think I think the appreciation for otters is only going to take off from there because there are some fantastic characters in Moss Flower. Yes, you have just uh, skyrocketed my enthusiasm for Moss Flower to read. Oh, dude, Moss Flower! I, I'm telling you right now, I'm an otter stan. Love the otters. I'm kind of an otter myself. You've listened to episodes. Love the otters. Just wait until you meet. Uh, I, I think it's River White is his name in in moss flower you're gonna love that character oh i'm so excited so in chapter 20 Clooney plots to finally invade Redwall. his horde begins to demonstrate some incompetency so Clooney executes one of his naysayers and with his horde in line he marches against Redwall. yeah i don't really have a lot to add to this chapter Not it's short really. and sweet it's yeah. just kind of, you know, it's it's like more Clooney being Clooney. Yeah. I love me some some uh, Clooney screen time, but uh, <laughs> this was this was a quick chapter. Yeah. Chapter 21, Matthias recovers in the infirmary next to Basil Staghair, as we mentioned, who was uh, wounded earlier. Abbot Mortimer reveals the fate of Methuselah to Matthias. And Matthias knows the next stage of his journey is going to have to be done alone. He questions Basil Staghair about what he knows about vipers and adders, and Basil Stag states that he once knew of a terrible adder that haunted Mossflower Wood. When Matthias tells Basil that the snake Asmodeus has the sword, Basil warns Matthias about the adder's reputation. He then gives Matthias a medal 
and tells him to seek out Captain Snow, an owl who resides near an abandoned barn to the northeast of Redwall. Just after midday, Matthias slips out of the infirmary and heads to the northeast. I think this chapter does a lot in, uh, has a lot of the classical fantasy tropes of like, um, or really just storytelling tropes of like the, um, now that the, um, the wise teacher is gone, um, you have to journey alone, kind of like what you said, or now that the wise teacher is gone, you have to rely on your friends. And I, and I, I like that Jake's takes the time to kind of write out that, uh, Matthias has his, um, he, he goes through like grieving for this. He yes. loses his friend. He has some time in solitude. It doesn't even really say how much time he is on his own and he's grieving for his friend. But then Basil comes along and he's kind of like a new, not a mentor, but he's a new, um, uh, he, he, uh, extends his friendship to Matthias to try yeah. to get him to continue on his journey. And again, I, I'm a Basil stan now. Like I love his interaction with Matthias telling him like, you know, if the situations were reversed, Methuselah would not be hanging around here. Just, you know, moping around. He would continue the quest. You need to continue this quest. Yeah. And then they order room ser- service with <laughs> tons of food. <laughs> and it's really fun. They have this interaction with, uh, with uh, Mortimer and um, Cornflower where they're saying that they're going to bring them out disgusting foods and it, and Basil's just <laughs> eating tons of food. Uh, it's really fun. Just the friendship that they have it. I, I think this is a great balance between the sadness that we had of Methuselah dying. And now this kind of surrounding by friendship, the, the rekindling that Matthias yeah. has of his warrior's journey to, to continue on. Um, it's a great chapter. I, I it's, yeah. Um, I, I really like the interactions that he has with friends and it, yeah. I think you, you said it right earlier that part of the warrior's journey is really having these people um, being, you know, having these other people kind of support you in what you're doing. What I love about this turning point from Matthias is that, you know, after surviving the whole King Bull Sparrow fight and all that, Basil recognizes him as a warrior at this point. Um, he kind of knows what Matthias is asking and what he's up to and, and kind of straight up tells him like, I don't think you should do this thing because it's dangerous, but I know you're going to anyway. So let me tell you how to do it right. And Matthias kind of accepts this help, but also accepts of himself, right? Like this is the moment, the deciding moment for him, um, whether or not he's, you know, gonna become the warrior that he thinks he must become. He has to take this last leg of the journey on his own and rely on his own wit, his own bravery, his own prowess to come to the conclusion. Um, And I love how Basil enables him to do that while simultaneously grounding him in what is important, which is the camaraderie that they share and the good food of the Abbey. Yeah, you're totally right. You, you, you absolutely nailed that. Um, it's, it's very beautiful. I, I, I don't know why I didn't remember Basil, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't, but this, he's so important to the journey with Matthias and yeah. um, he, he's, he is treating him more like an equal, but then he, he's also, 
um, very realistically telling him what the dangers of being a hero are. And that kind of goes through the whole explanation of, of the adder and um, of Asmodeus poison teeth and in the legend around that, like he's saying like, if you're going to continue on your warrior journey, you need to start doing it now, but also you need to know what you're up against too. And I think that that's really clever and really cool. Yeah. So in chapter 22, Matthias makes his way Northeast and is ambushed by a shrew who identifies herself as gorilla union of shrews in moss flower or Gaussum. Uh, Matthias mistakes Gaussim for her name, although she's never given any other name for the rest of the book. Alongside Gaussim appears many other shrews, among them their leader, Logalog, who interrogate Matthias about his travels through shrew country. Matthias explains his mission to find Captain Snow and kill Asmodeus, and the shrews agree to allow Matthias passage on his mission. The next morning, Matthias finds Captain Snow's barn, but inadvertently falls into a cat's mouth. Man, you're right out of the right out of the fire into the frying pan. <laughs> Matthias <laughs> just can't catch a break on this. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear your, thought, your thoughts on this, the shrews. Um, I've always loved the shrews. I think that they're really fun uh, characters in pretty much every book. Um, in this book, I think they're a lot more quarrelsome. Um, and they're given kind of this, the characterization of like, just being irritated at everyone and always looking for a fight. And I, I think that's just a really fun you know, again, juxtaposition to kind of the Red Wall Abbey. Um, I love that they call themselves the Gorilla, Gorilla Union of Shrews. And they're the one group <laughs> of creatures that seem to be truly democratic for all that that is good and bad. Yeah, for its its uh, highs and lows. <laughs> they are definitely democratic. Um, I think this is their kind of funny like them oh, them yeah. introducing themselves to matthias but then quickly introducing the stone you have to if you're holding the stone you can talk <laughs> and they're <laughs> fighting with each other passing the stone around and matthias just goes and grabs it and is just like okay i know how this is gonna work <laughs> um it's very clever i i don't know if i like the shrews i like logalog i think logalog is is a cool character but, yeah um I, I, there's a part of me that's just like, are they just purely comic relief? Like, are they just here to be funny? Yeah, um, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's another part of me that's like, man, I, I think I might fit in pretty good with the shrews. Like, <laughs> I think I think if I was stuck in this world, I might be a shrew. But. My favorite aspect of this shrew society i don't i don't remember that it happens in this chapter but there is a a moment when matthias just gets fed up with them like arguing <laughs> yeah about what they're on. gonna do and he yeah he just picks up their speaking rock and just throws it into the woods <laughs> yeah he just heaves it into the bushes and is like all right i'm done talking to you yeah that i think that's in part three but um uh, we, we already kind of get a glimpse of just Matthias's taste for the shrews in this yeah. very short interaction. Um, it's funny. He picks up so quickly of like how to be able to manage them. But yes, he, I think it's so funny because 
it's clear he kind of respects them, but he also clears like, like he's also a, a, a creature of action, right? And and he kind of showcases that like there's a time and a place for discussion and there's a time and a place for action. And we can't allow our leadership to become so indecisive as to what to do that they never take action in the first place. And that is exactly. kind of the... The, the critical dysfunction, I think, in um, the the Gaussian, you know, in, in the, this guerrilla union of shrews and moss flower. Yeah, and they kind of do Matthias dirty, too, in the, in the fact that um, he's asking for their help and they say, well, the barn's over here and Captain Snow is in there, but make sure, I mean, he already knows that you you need to make sure not to get caught by Captain Snow. Like Basil warns him when he gives him the medal. Yeah. The shrews kind of do the same thing and they send him in there. However, they they're withholding really key information from Matthias, which I think is <laughs> really kind of dirty of them. Yeah. But it also speaks to like the inefficiency of this guerrilla right. bureaucracy. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're too busy arguing about themselves or quarreling over captain snow, getting Matthias to actually help Matthias out. Yeah. So we get to the last chapter of book two, which has been very long. Uh, <laughs> but in chapter 23, Clooney launches his assault on Redwall. The two factions skirmish at the Abbey Gates, leading to many casualties. Clooney's horde manages to mount their battering ram, and they slowly begin to wear down the Abbey Gates as Redwall's defenders devise new tactics for fighting. Clooney's secondary unit begins their tunneling effort. And that's where we leave book two, is on this pending assault, or rather assault in progress, on Redwall, as Matthias himself is uh, entering this last stage of his perilous journey for the sword. Yeah, quite the, the cliffhanger um, with this this last chapter. It's kind of setting up for exactly what's going to happen. Um, it, it's setting up a lot of what's going to happen yeah. in our, our last part. Uh, yeah, really long episode. Thanks for, for staying with it. Um, before we get to our closing plugs, we have to talk through our new list of most memorable side characters in mm -hmm. Berman. Yeah, there's a lot of standout characters in here. And just to, to, to name some of the most memorable side characters that I kind of chose out, uh, there's, of course, Silent Sam, uh, Jess Squirrel, uh, Gaussim, Logalog, Warbeak, Dunwing. I mean, we get a lot of interesting side characters Although I think my favorite of the new crew is probably Jess. I really think that chapter with Basil cements her as kind of like my favorite standout from book two. Yeah, I agree. I, I totally agree with you, Trevor. I think that is just one of the best chapters in, um, in book two. Um, and they're jet for Jess just kind of popping up in the middle of this, <laughs> this book. <laughs> Um, she takes on such a big role so quickly. Um, I really like silent Sam cause he's kind of like a, um, he's kind of like a comic relief in a way. Like yes. he's really cute and he kind of, uh, lightens up the story a little bit, um, with the sucking on, on his paw and, um, having a little dagger and pretending to stab it and stuff like, 
um he i think he's really cute and i I do like him but in terms of the actual kind of forces that they're adding um yeah i i think jess is such a key character and jess and basil is like a rogue squadron that go together it's it's really cool (laughs) yes yeah i i still think that for me my favorite side character of the book is is just always going to be basil um but i love jess from book two um and we can talk about you know some of the the later characters i do love warbeak i love gausam um for different reasons, but I feel like they don't quite do as much in book two as they kind of do in book book three. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I, one thing I didn't really mention with the, the sparrows, um, I really love the name convention that they have for the sparrows, Warbeak, Dunwing, King Bull Sparrow. Um, I forgot um, Warbeak's dad's name. His name was Grey Tail. But uh, they just, Jake, Jake's does a good job of, of, naming these characters in a way that makes sense for the kind of animals that they are and with the kind of ravaged nature of the sparrows i i think warbeak and dunwing fit perfectly well yeah so as far as vermin are concerned uh most memorable vermin i kind of chose a couple of names uh that i think Forgive me, I think they show up in book two uh, for the first time, except for Asmodeus. He shows up in book one. He's kind of the secondary villain to the entire book. So I I feel like we'll talk about him more in book three. Um, Yeah, for sure. But I I really thought that Kilconey, Sela, Chicken Hound, and King Bull Sparrow stood out to me. Yeah, I I think on that list... um... Was Cheese Thief in the last one? I think he was. I think he was in part one. Yeah, Cheese Thief one. does show up as a part one character. Uh, although his his the moment with with uh, 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 Scrag, you know that is a that is a, a memorable character moment for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I re- remember him more in this part than the first one. Um, I think Chicken Hound is probably top of the list for me here Mm -hmm. only because he is so like brutal and ruthless and um we we know that he plays a a bigger part later i'd also say king bullsborough i i do really (laughs) like the the interaction that he has with matthias i wish we got to see him more and Mm -hmm. i i wish that he was like a bigger foil to matthias than he actually ends up being because he comes in he comes in and then he's only there for a few chapters and then he's gone like yeah um he we don't we he's kind of one note i guess in a way but man his introduction when they get to the court and he is just like let's get crazy is <laughs> it is really memorable i i really do like that i i think for me uh I, this is going to be a controversial pick but i think Sela for me is the most <sighs> memorable vermin of of this this book uh, you know, she she comes in, she has a big impact on the story, and then she has the most devastating death <laughs> in the entire novel. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I right. think that, you know, for those reasons, she she sets up an archetype for us. And I for me, she's just like the most memorable, uh, you know, kind of bad character in here. You know, Trevor, uh I don't like your answer, but I think it's the right one. <laughs> I don't. 
<laughs> I don't like it, but I think you're totally right. I think that she is the most memorable in this part, part two with her death and with her interaction with, with um, we've, we probably spent the most time talking about her too in yeah. this whole, you know, long uh, part two book two. Um, I think we've probably talked about her the most and yeah. she's brings up the most controversial feelings for me too, as a character and what Jake's is doing there. I think, I think you're totally right. I think she's got to be number one on the list. Yeah. She, she's so influential, I think to the course of Clooney's story um, and, and kind of filling out some of those, you know, secondary character interactions. Um, she's the catalyst for some great, if, if not terrible for sure, uh, but also great, you know, kind of character moments. So, well, that is book two, the quest. Um, Next week, we are going to be covering the final book in this novel, book three, The Warrior. That's right. And then after book three, we're going to do our big review episode. That's going to have all the friends that you know from episode zero. We're going to be with Tiff. We're going to be with William. That's going to be a lot of fun to to go through. Um, As a reminder, you can find us on Instagram and threads at books and badgers. That's with an N. Um, you can also email, email us any questions that you have at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on Sela. I would love to hear your thoughts <laughs> on this part. We, I think we had a lot more hot takes in the second episode than the first. So join in the conversation. We want to hear from you as well. And uh, we'll read them on the podcast at some point. I definitely want to hear some people's takes on Sela. So I if, do too. if you've got, you know, a, a, a hot opinion, get it to us. We really want to know. Yeah. Uh, if you love our voices, mainly Trevor's voice, uh, you can find him, uh, more of him on Slayhouse Presents. Um, and then if you want to support the show, the best thing you can, you can do is just leave us a review. Um, it helps out a ton. It helps us to get viewed in the godforsaken algorithm of apple Podcasts or google Podcasts, so um, please leave a review that's just really the best way to support us share with your friends um i know that red wall isn't something for everyone but i do think there's something in there for everyone so um it'd be great to get more people into this community into this series and to join in the conversation all right well that does it for episode two uh and we will see you in episode three again thanks for joining <laughs>